Good evening. Will you please welcome a friend of us all and a fine gentleman, I have to say, Mr. Chris Madden. And uh, what else can we say? The truly wonderful Helen O'Hara. Actually, uh, I, I begged to to go to that first cat club and, and introduce uh, introduce this record because um, Gary Guestlist, who was a, a, another member of the cat club, kept telling me we do this thing on a on a Tuesday night once a month and it used to be on a Tuesday, didn't it? And um, <clears throat> there was only one album that, that I wanted to bring. I wanted to bring the album. I mean, there's lo- I've got lots of lots of albums that I really really love. This is one that that has just constantly stayed with me. It's stayed really close to the turntable. I've got, I think, set of five or six different versions of it. Mm. Someone had told me, I was saying this to you earlier, someone had told me on the 19th of September 1985, when I sat outside my mum and dad's house because I was locked out because I forgot my key, that I'd be sitting here... 57 years old talking to one of the um, one of the creators my mind would have not really been able to have computed it properly but I'm absolutely delighted to mm. have not only read the book which is amazing and we'll, we'll get to that later but to be sat here with um, someone who uh, what, what was your role in creating this album that we're going to listen to how did how do you see how do you perceive your role now looking back um it was it developed actually so mm. initially we'd just come out of um tour ia mm. and that had kevin had put his dungarees in the bin i'd followed suit and that that was the end that was the end of that um it took a while for the album to to start because um Kevin needed a break, you know, from all the touring and the rigours of mm. what we've been through and everything. I mean, it was all great, but, you know, it, was, it had been very tiring and everything. And Kevin and me um, moved in together because um, we were, you know, going out together and he'd asked me to live with him. So we moved into this very nice, very posh flat. I'd moved in from my student flat, which was, you know, flapping curtains, two-bar, electric fire, um, took me a little while to adjust to that. Mm-hmm. Kevin wanted to do a lot of decoration. Everything took a lot of... I mean, he wasn't doing it personally, but <laughs> it was... Um, things t- took a long time. I, I was feeling actually quite frustrated, really, with, with the, the length of time that mm-hmm. things were taking cause, because I just wanted to get on with the music, but mm-hmm. he wasn't ready. He, and also it was that naivety of realising that you know, Kevin was actually working out what the album was going to be about and, and what he was going to be writing about, etc. Um, so when we did start writing, mm. it started to sort of fall into place now. That, um, you know, we'd been to Ireland and I could see that the album was going to be quite political. Mm-hmm. You know, the experiences that we, we, we were having and the, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and... Uh, 
I think one of the one of the things that I realised that my violin playing was going to be very different was when we were listening to um, Pennies from Heaven, mm. um, the Steve Martin mm. version, and uh, on watching the film, and a violin started playing, and, and Kevin stopped the tape, you know, the, the video, mm. which we'd got out from across the road, and um, he listened to it again. He said, I think that would be great for the next album, to play in a sort of bluesy style, bluesy style violin. And that, that sort of caught me out, really, because I was still thinking of Turaye fiddle sound. Mm. Um, and so we taped that violin, and then I started researching um, blues violin players. And I'd come across um, Don Sugarcane... Don Sugarcane Harris, I think, um, who I'd come across years and years ago... Um, when I was working with a, a group in my teenage years, and I, remem- I remembered his playing, and, and he, that he used to play a bit like an electric guitar. Um, so I remembered his playing, and then I tried to research other blues players, and which was quite hard then because you know there's no internet or anything like that. You had to go to record shops and look at you know back of record albums and that sort of thing, and came across Clarence Gatemath Brown. Um, and anyway, we sort of bought the, these sort of albums I could find, find um, Martin Hogan and, uh, you know, any blues players I could find, started studying how they were playing and trying to sort of absorb what they were playing rather than imitate, really. And um, from there, we just very gradually started to, 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 to work on, actually, this is, this is what she's like. That was the first song that we, that we started on. And it was always in the, the sections, you know, it was always 12 minutes long, approximately, you know, in, in the three sections. Um, and my role then just developed in... I hadn't, been, hadn't done much songwriting with Kevin before then. Um, I'd done a little bit on Let's Get This Straight From The Start. But we just sort of, myself, Kevin and Billy, Billy Adams, the guitarist, we um, became the nucleus of the group and, and met every day, you know, sort of nine to five, at the flat and started writing just very naturally really you know Kevin would obviously write the lyrics and would come up with ideas he might have a melody and he'd say can you find some chords for this hell you know and I'd work out the chords um, and Billy's role was mainly feedback as to you know sound good very honest good sounding board for Kevin as to what he honestly felt about the ideas that were, were being chucked about, you know. And, it, you know, as I say in the book, it really was like a jigsaw, the whole album. It's just gradually slotted into place, um, a lot of experimentation. For example, on um, This Is What She's Like, we we experimented with... Kevin played the, the, the first section. Um, it wasn't a sort of straight rhythm. He was pushing some chords a bit naturally when, when, when he was playing the guitar, sort of anticipating the beat, if you like. Mm. And I suggested that maybe we, we, he, we should use that rhythm as, you know, not, not we should use that with the drums, not um, play straight through it, um, because that seemed to be a very important um, aspect of the music. And then... We decided to try to use a string um, quartet as well, or a string trio, to try and um, be the rhythm section instead of using a traditional, you know, um, guitar. And so I scored out parts for for the rhythm, you know, for, for, for the strings, and we tried it at the flat, which was, you know, um, 
interesting. It didn't, it didn't really work. What it sounded like, when I think about it now, and what it sounded like now is, um, I don't know if you know um, Coldplay's Viva, what is it, Viva? That's the one, yeah. And uh, it sounds like that, that's got a very rhythmic string part, probably on a synth. But that's how it sort of sounded, really. So it, it was sort of, it could have worked, but I think it wasn't quite right for, for the song. I think I think that that was the thing. So it was, so for example, yeah, there was a lot of experimenting, um, and I became very much um, because I think particularly because I was living with Kevin and he his creativity was re- suddenly really became sort of full blown that I was constantly. Um, responding to his creativity, so I was never really off duty, you know. So, so I was, you know, like Billy could, you know, wave goodbye at five o'clock and have the weekends off, but I was always, um, you know, which was fine for, you know, it was, it was just how it was. But I suppose it was quite an intense time for me because obviously Kevin was constantly thinking about things, and I was note taking, <laughs> sort of working things out all the other times as well. So. Um, so yeah, songwriting, experimenting, I, and later I became um, the musical director of the band. So I was very much involved in auditioning musicians um, for, for all sorts of roles. You know, mainly the drums, <laughs> trying to find the right drummer, mm. um, and then often rehearsing the band um, before Kevin would come to rehearsals because you know I could I could work sort of direct get the main things going rather than him sitting around waiting for um, the sort of skeleton of the song to be worked on, that sort of thing. Um, so I had a very, very busy busy role, really, which was constantly um, con- constantly changing, constantly sort of becoming more co- complicated and comp- complex as well. And often that was, you know, management was chaotic too. And so... Often I would sort of step in to help musicians out with, you know, getting paid and sort of liaising a bit. And so I, I had, I was wearing lots of hats, really. Mm. <laughs> um, so, it was, it, yeah, it was quite exhausting, I think. Um, uh, and, yeah, and also, you know, when the album came out, I was doing a lot of the, prom- you know, the promotion as well. So, yeah, everything, really. Uh, one thing I will say is, is that I noticed on the... Um, which is correct on the uh, fact sheet is that um, on the album it says Kevin and Pete Schwer produced it, but in fact it was um, myself as well, which Kevin didn't put me on the credits initially. I don't really know why, he doesn't remember why, um, but previous, you know, the, sorry, um, later versions he did put my name on, so because I was very much involved in the mixing and, and production of it all, really. So. Yeah. What a journey. Yeah. 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 It was. Um, it was great. <laughs> yeah. That, that's yeah. what comes across in the mm. book, and you know we're straight into book territory now. We think that's okay to do. Um, what came across was was actually what what, what an amazing time it, it, it was. It, and and that was a real shock for me to read. So. I mean, possibly you are aware of this. That there were there were a lot of stories that floated around about. Yeah. So I, I had a mate who signed a, a major record deal in the eighties, and I remember this engineer coming up to Leeds. So my mate was from Leeds, uh, and he was a guy who'd been involved in on some sort of mix. Can't remember his name. 
he started telling all these stories of, 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 about there was nobody was allowed to laugh in the studio. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, yeah. The, these you know these urban legends that, that, <laughs> that spring up yeah. that yeah. that when the album was complete and he went to, he went to New York and he got locked in a filing cabinet and the building burns down. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That doesn't come across in, in the book. It actually comes across that this was a really amazing experience. I mean, I know that it was really intense for you because you started to assume these multiple roles, but it, sound, it sounded... From it's intense, you, but it was very yeah. exciting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, we the, the things I remember most about it is, is really having lots of laughs as well with, yeah. Ke, with Kevin and Billy, you know, yeah. when we were writing and, and in the studio with Alwyn Stanley, you know, mm. just... You know, really enjoyable. Mm. It was. There were lots of myths floating around, and yeah, um, yeah these th- these things happen, don't they? Mm. Yeah. But no, mm. it was it was it was amazing, amazing mm. experience. Sounds like there was a real striving for for perfection, and and that that seems to come across. Unless I've really misunderstood that, but there was this real there was this constant striving to absolutely gay right so the you know there was it seemed to be that there's some recordings which which was which were scrapped because the musicians some of the musicians who came aboard just didn't really get what what you were trying to do yeah i think it, a lot of it wasn't us being um over perfectionist it was it was just trying to find we were trying to find the right right musicians for the music mm. and it was just frustrating when things it, it wasn't um, the, all the musicians were great, it, mm. but it was just a case of getting the right feel, really. Yeah. So, so you know, for example, we had um, uh, Woody Woodmansey, yes, you know, yeah. the Spider from Mars, playing yeah. with us. Who was, you know, well, we all know, he, you know, he's, he's a brilliant drummer, yeah. a brilliant musician, you know, really beautiful person. There, mm. you know, he he ticked every box, but um, he didn't have the right feel. Mm. For the album, he played on the waltz on one of the tracks, um, mm. and we th- we thought he'd be right, but you know he just wasn't. Mm. And and, um, and actually, later in later years, when I met up with Woody again, you know, he said, I "Totally understand that I wasn't the right drummer," mm. you know, and I just thought that was so lovely that he mm. was he could see that, and he didn't have a big a big ego, you know, to sort of be upset about. Mm not carrying on with the rest of the album. The same with um, Crusher, who uh, um, Kevin and me had seen Crusher play in um, in New York when we'd, we'd been to see James Brown and Etta James was supporting. Mm. And both of us kind of looked at each other when Crusher was playing because it was just like, wow, this, this guy is amazing. You know, let, mm. let's, you, you know, see if he'll play on the album. And he was the first drummer we tried. And... Again, you know, we, we found we got one track with Crusher, which was uh, "Listen to This," and he was absolutely perfect for that. But he might have been right for the app, for the, app, the the whole album. But we'd gone to Montreux for a month to record, you know, the the first version, if you like, of "Don't Stand Me Down," mm-hmm. and um, there were lots of problems. I don't think it was just Crusher. You know, Kevin and me had just broken up. So and we hadn't told anybody. So we were sort of <laughs> recording this album with a producer, Tom Dowd, who was, um, uh, yeah, I mean, a legend, you know, who he's worked mm. with. But um, 
didn't really add anything to the album apart from being, you know, a really nice person. He was re really um, an engineer, I, I think. He's, mm. he, that's his main sort of credit, really, is he, he's a, an amazing engineer. But he... Um, and he, he, he did suggest that we used a metronome to get the right speeds for each song. So that was, you know, we did learn that mm. from him. But he didn't really suggest anything else. Um, and so there were other things. Vince was, was having a breakdown. You mm. know, he was uh, suffering. Um, there, were, there were all sorts of things. So it, it might be that Crusher could have been the right drummer, but the, with all sorts of things going on, mm. it didn't work out. So... So, yeah, we just got one track with him. But then, you know, when we did find the right drummer, who was Tim Dancy, who we'd seen play with Al Green, it was just wonderful when it, you know, you just suddenly realise you've got somebody who was playing what you're hearing in your head, but you just couldn't find with anybody else. And we, we literally auditioned, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, 50 drummers, 100 wow. drummers. I don't know. They, they'd come in to the studio, you know, and Kevin was paying all their expenses, you know, and, and sometimes they, they'd start playing. And, you know, they were all good, you know, all good drummers. Um, but they'd start playing and you'd just think, oh, I just know from the first 30 seconds they're not right. But you think, well, you know, they've come all this way. You've got to let them play a couple of songs mm. and, mm. you know... <laughs> So that's just being nice, you know, because yeah. it's like it's not easy being when you're auditioning either, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, sure. So when when Tim, yeah, when Tim stepped in, it was just like magic, you know. Mm. And and that's how it was. When somebody was right, you just knew. Like when Vincent Crane started to play, we just knew he was right, mm. you know. Um, but the ones who weren't right, you know, sometimes sometimes you just want somebody to be right, don't you? And you know it's like relationships, isn't it? You yeah. really want some, yeah. you want to want it to work out, but you yeah. might know in your heart actually it's not really yeah. quite right. And yeah. and, um, and there was pressure on us as well to to deliver an album. I mean, we'd had a you know really successful tour. I had been massively successful. Come yeah. Eileen had been number one, and all the rest of it. And the record company would, you know, where's the album? You know, um, but we re we did refuse to compromise. Um, and we, I think we were lucky in, in that it was the 80s when there was a lot of money sloshing around you know, sure, in, yeah. with record companies. Yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't happen today. You know? no, no. <laughs> so we were lucky in that respect. But on the other hand, it wasn't free money. No, of course. Never is. You know, anyway, it wasn't free money, yeah. no. But it, it, it did enable us to carry on. Mm. Um, but yeah, it took a while. Mm. <laughs> so... Whilst you're recording, you use that word feel, and that, that's brilliant because this album it, it, it is an album of feel. It, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a really beautiful piece of art. As you were recording it and the pressure that you were under because Turaye had been so commercially successful, when you were recording, did, did, did you consider that, that it wouldn't be the same level of success that you? I don't think we thought about success. Did I mean, we just totally that? concentrated on right. on the music. Um, I mean, that never really came into it. I mean, you know, the main thing was producing something that we were really, really happy with and we were proud of. Um, and you hope it's going to be successful. Mm. You want it to be successful. Um, but, I mean, we weren't naive in that, we, you know, we... 
we knew we were doing something different to everybody else, but it doesn't. But so was Two Rye A, really. Yeah. You know, and and I think, you know, if Two Rye A hadn't been successful, hadn't hadn't have. You know, Come and Eileen hadn't been played and hadn't, we hadn't got a hit. People might have said, well, you know, you bring in three fiddle players and you wear dungarees, what do you expect? Except yeah. that it was successful, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can sort of turn things around, really, can't you? And, and, and I just think it, it wasn't... I think there, was, there were a lot of people who... Kevin had made quite a lot of enemies. Um, a lot of people in the music press didn't like him. Mm. So if somebody had a go, then they sort of, others felt they could steam in. So there was a lot of mm. people having a go at Kevin because they, they wanted to, you know, yeah. and quite nastily as well. Yeah. Um, I think people don't like you doing things differently sometimes. They want they want what's gone before, mm. you know, yeah, where's, well, where, where's Turaye number two, you know, yes, yeah, yeah. And because it was so radically different. And also, what amongst everything else that was happening at the time, you know, like Phil Collins and Madonna, and it, it didn't fit. It was all about real instruments and, um, you know, intimacy and, and, you know, it wasn't synths and synthetic sounds and, and club music. It was, well, as we're here later, you know, it's an album you sort of had to really sit down and listen to. It wasn't background music or dance music or... It, at the time, was very different. It was more like, I mean, you know, we knew that when we first started writing it, it was more like our sort of bands approached albums in the 70s, really, mm. where they looked at an album as a whole, mm. um, you know, long tracks yeah, and yeah. lots of, you know, different instruments and um, no single, you know, that that was the plan, not, not to have um, a traditional sort of three-minute single. So when we produced a 12-minute single, that didn't go down well. <laughs> and then the record company said, well, how about if we split it up? And so we had this sort of, you know, double single, if you like. It had been sort of chopped in half and that didn't work. Um, it was, you know, it was always 12 minutes long, you know. And, you know, in hindsight, we could have, listen, we could have um, released Listen to This, which was the shortest track and very mm. commercial. Mm. Um, but, you know, This Is What She's Like was the centrepiece of the album, really. Mm. It was, um, you know, it could have been a single, except that radio doesn't play 12-minute singles, you know. So, and, and you know, nothing's changed, really, today. If you don't fit mm. Radio 1 now or Radio 2, um, you won't be played. You know, if you do, you know, you might get Radio Six. You know, BBC Radio Six might play the sort of indie, slightly, you know, different things. But but basically, you, you, people, you know, the powers up there want you to conform to what they want to be played. You know, it's very hard to do something um, different. And we weren't doing it differently for the sake of it. It was just no. what was happening, yeah. you know. It was yeah, just sure, what yeah. was coming from Kevin, because obviously he was the, the main creative drive, of, obviously, of the album. And um, I think, you know, now, um, we've been... It's not a matter of proving, proving right or proving wrong. or anything. It's just, you know, I think the fact that it has stood the test of time... Um, yeah. You know, yeah. 
I used to, good. <laughs> I, I used to get ribbed for liking this album. Did you? Yeah, I did, yeah. And so, for, for me, my experience was a, a personal vindication when it started <laughs> to yeah. start to get reappraised. Yeah. I, I think somewhere in the 90s, it started to get reappraised. yeah. And uh, I'd met Kevin a few times before, but I, I did chat to him at probably 97, 98 and yeah. told him, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a brilliant British soul album. And he said, it's not a soul album. <laughs> and I said, OK, well, that's how it appears to me. How has it been for you to have it reevaluated? You know, as a, as a as as being a really really huge and key part of the of the creation of it. Yeah, it's been it was great. I mean, in the nineties, I was very much removed from mm. music business anyway because mm. I'd I'd stopped playing and was bringing my family up and I wasn't paying much attention. Um, and yeah, the album had come out and Kevin had sent me a copy. And um, my first thoughts was <laughs> that second album, if I remember rightly, has got Kevin and Billy on the front. That's right, yeah. That's I was um, really annoyed about that because yeah. I thought it wasn't, it wasn't an ego thing. Yeah. You know, if it had been just Kevin, that would have been fine. But it was, that album was very much the three of us. We, we do, you know, we'd worked yeah. with loads of musicians and everybody was really important, but... It was Dex's then was the three of us, and I I just felt really um, upset, you know, that I'd been mm. left off the cover, mm. um, and um, it was a, a really it's a great picture of Kevin and Billy, mm. really, you know, they've both got the Brooks Brothers suits on, but it, but it wasn't to me it wasn't a true representation of mm. that three of us working, and we did work so closely together, you mm. know, we we. You know, as I say in the book, we we almost sort of separated ourselves from society. Really, we sort of, you know, we, we just really like this very tight unit, and and um, so so that was one of my first things, and 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 mm. also that a, a sound enhancer had been used, which which Kevin hadn't um, realised at the time until it was too late, and the mm. album was out, and that had altered the sound a little bit so he was unhappy about that so in some ways it was um a bit of a disappointment really um to have released it with, with that um although kevin still stands by the cover he's even to this day even even though you know we've had a conversation about it re recently and he he still thinks that it's fine to have kevin and billy himself and billy on the front um but that's just you know um we just see it differently, I suppose. I guess you know, but um, but the third one, which came out in was that 2012? Um, the director's cut. No, the director's cut um, was. Um, I was back on the front then. I was. Yeah. <laughs> so it was the three of us back on the. <laughs> but um, and also Kevin had credited me with production as well, which I was really pleased about. But what I didn't like about that album <laughs> is that. Um, there were two extra tracks put on it. Mm. Um, one was um, The Way You Look Tonight, which mm. we'd recorded um, when we were trying out different producers, and we tried out Jimmy Miller, who mm. worked with the Stones, yeah, and, yeah. you know... Uh, and that song just came about through... Um, some of the guys were, were jamming in, in, in a sort of break, you know, playing standard songs, and um, the thing with Dex's was that, you know, you didn't jam, you know, you didn't... 
um, it was very much like actually a, um, a, a sort of classical orchestra in the and it was part of my training as well, which is one of the reasons I really related to, to Dexes is that they operated very much like classical musicians in that, you know, if, if, you, if you weren't playing because you were meant to be rehearsing, you didn't play. You know, you didn't twiddle around or jam or, or that sort of thing. You just tuned up and then sort of waited for the conductor, like, which was Kevin, or myself if I was, when I was MD. Um, uh, and but anyway, what had happened in this session is that some of the some of the group had broken the the rule and were jamming, and um, Kevin came into the room and and everybody's faces were like you know we've been caught <laughs> the jamming, and he and he just picked up his guitar and he said oh does anybody know the way you look tonight, and it was like oh you know, <laughs> and um, we all did, yeah. and we just rehearsed it a couple of times and, and Jimmy recorded it mm. and quickly mixed it and mm. it's, it's a you know really sweet beautiful version and, and that but Kevin put it on the album and he also put another song called Kevin Rowland's 13th Time on mm. the album which originally we had thought about putting on the original Don't Stand Me Down mm. um, but decided against it and um, we had a rough version that we'd tried with another producer called John Porter. Mm. And again, it was very roughly done. It wasn't, um, the parts weren't arranged particularly well. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't happy with it. And, and anyway, it found its way onto the album. And, um, that's why this version for me is the only version actually that I'm happy with. I don't like the other versions, you know, for the reasons I've said is, um, I think they take away from from what it, it you know. There's something very special about about this album we're going to hear tonight, in that it works completely. And I think having these other two tracks um, has diluted it or just interfered with it. Mm. You know, they're great songs, but I think they perhaps could have been on an EP or something. Mm. So, um, so yeah, I'm really pleased that it's got the recognition now, mm. and and people are discovering it and mm. love it. And we, you know, we. we young people are, are discovering it and, and loving it as well you know so it's really holding out you know but um i would always say it's this this is the version to listen to yeah. me too yeah yeah, yeah me cool. too yeah oh, i've got millions of questions but i think we probably should listen to really? it yeah this is a, an, an absolutely and, you, and you, you you said it in a different way so it's a peerless record. There isn't another record that came out of the 80s that is like this album. It is utterly unique. Thank you for, thank you for, for creating this. Oh, because it has had a, a, such, such a profound effect musically upon me and, 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 it, and it holds a really special place mm. in, in my life and the things that I listen to and it almost certainly influenced the things that I listened which came out not so soon after but you know within a few years mm. which I, I still hold as, as real templates for what I really love. Enjoy listening to it, and it, as I said earlier, it's never been, it's never been off the shelf uh, next to my record player. Well, I've got, you know, I'm not one for, you know, displaying Dex's memorabilia around, around my flat, but I have got a picture of um, 
it, it, we thought it was considered as, as the, the cover. It was a picture taken by Kim Knott, who, who took this album cover. And mm. um, he's actually a fashion, or he certainly was a fashion photographer. You know, he's like for models and Vogue and stuff. So mm. he's, he's got a great eye, mm. you know, for, for photography uh, of people. And he took a great picture of the, you know, you might have seen it, um, of the three of us, um, Kevin, me and Billy um, on Madison Avenue. Yeah, it's brilliant. And it's slightly at an angle, and it's a black and white picture, yeah. and... You know, we were all wearing coats and stuff, and it's you know, he Kim said that should be the the album cover, mm. and it it could have been. Mm. Um, I'm actually glad this one is though because I think it is. It's got some peculiar sort of. It is, it is, you're right. It's a really peculiar cover. Yeah, yeah. it's slightly unsettling. It's yeah. a bit Victorian. It's a bit stiff, isn't it? You know, whereas the other one is just a great shot. Yeah. You know, it's just a great picture. And I, but I, what I've done is I've. I've got that blown up and I have that on my wall oh, because wow. because this album is, you know, like, the same yeah. for you, you yeah. know, it, it's, um, you know, I, I listen to it still, I still listen to it. You Me know. too. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and that cover does not tell you anything about what is to come no, at all. No, and that's the slightly confusing thing, isn't yeah, it, that, yeah. you know, the clothes we're wearing and everything. I mean, you know, if you like the Two Raya cover... It's all right. Well, but yeah, there's a sense yeah, of... Yeah. A bit Celtic. There's, yeah, yeah. you know, you yeah. you, you kind of know, don't you? You've got an inkling. You of got, what... Yeah, you, you, there's no surprises. Yeah. Whereas that and the music. Yeah. We were talking. We were talking earlier about what I do. I'm a, I'm a therapist, psychotherapist, and we were talking about the things that um, when you listen to music, for example, one of the things that you, it things new memories emerge. Yeah. Yeah. And when I was thinking yesterday about coming here today, one of the memories that emerged was listening to this album for the first time, and it just it, there was something there. Mm. I, I, I couldn't genuinely make mm. sense of it. Mm. It didn't take me long to make sense mm. of it because I listened to it four times that day. Wow. And when I finished the fourth listen, it was just like. I'm listening to something that I've really not heard the like of before. Well, I think I felt a bit, a bit like that when we were writing it yeah. sometimes, you know, when, for example, the first yeah. track on this is um, The Occasional Flicker, mm. and the hearing Kevin playing the, the first verse just on an acoustic guitar, and the chords, are, it was just that thing of, that's just very different. You yeah. know, there was a, a, there was definitely an atmosphere. Yeah, you know, that that was the thing. You know, and, and that happened a lot throughout the album. Of you're just like wow, you know, this is a, you know. Well, whatever um, you were channeling, it's something really magical. <laughs> After listening to the record, we had a post-album discussion and a bit of a Q and A. Nobody's mentioned the production of the album, the recording of the album. I think it's the best that we've ever listened to in terms of that ever. Wow. <laughs> it's balance. It's like spherical when it starts. Like everything perfect in the world or in the universe is that good. Oh. And it opens up mm. and gives. Tell us about your role in the production of the album. I think it was all part of one thing, really, writing my musical direction um, and then when we came together with Pete Schweer, the engineer, who was actually very young at the time. It, it, it's, it's funny, I've always thought of him as being, 
getting older, but but actually he was about our age, you know, late twenties when when he um, worked with Don't Stand Me Down, you know, with us. And I think we were so lucky to have, you know, when thing, things we were talking about this earlier, weren't we? That sometimes things happen in life, and you think oh, it's terrible, you know, and you wonder what you're going to do. For example, we started the mix of Don't Stand Me Down in New York. Um, Kevin, me, and Billy, and an engineer. And something happened to the tapes in transit coming coming back to England, and basically what we'd mixed was ruined. So at the time, you know, it was devastating, and, and you know, we'd spent obviously spent ages and money and all the rest of it. Um, and then Kevin had a chat with um, a guy called Aaron Chatravati, who, who masters has mastered all Dex's albums and practically everybody's in the world, you know. And um, Aaron was a sort of somebody he trusted, and he said, well, you know, we've got to remix it. Who, who do we who do we use as an engineer? And um, it was Aaron who said, well, I think Pete Schweer would, would be great. And, you know, he was just spot on, because we've worked with Pete on everything since, or, you know, Kevin has, and, and um, he just, you know, he's like almost like part of the band, really. You know, he totally understands exactly what Dexes need and so what so when we were mixing it it was it was him as well you know was, was very much a, but it's the years it is the years yeah and somebody a, a mm. human being or human beings got to put their hands on them sliders mm. and get those individual elements of that what makes that sound he has so yeah that, that's right but they've also got to try you know because Amazing. He had to translate what we wanted as well. And we can only say, well, you know, it needs to be a bit more, you know. And you're sort of, you haven't got the technical talk, if you like, but, you know, it needs somebody who understands that and and, and, and is on the same wavelength, really. And he understood that it was, you know, the intimacy, it was natural sounds. <clears throat> you know, he totally understood that the sort of, I mean, parts of it are, of that, I mean, particularly hearing it again today, you know, is is... It's very chaotic, isn't it? And, and mm. you know, energy. But you've got still got to hear everything. You know, there's a hell of a lot going on. Mm. But you, you know, you can hear everything when you when you zoom in on <clears throat> on what you want to listen to. Mm. Um, and that's not easy to, to to mix. You know, so we were really really fortunate. Again, you know, one of those things that works out. Mm. You know, you think, what am I going to do? And then it, yeah, it sort of was prob was was for the better. I'm sure was for the better, you know. So, yeah, mm. group effort basically. <laughs> Anyone else? We're running out of time, but I just want to ask you a follow-up. I could have asked this any other time, Alan. Sorry, but oh. just it just it stuck out tonight. But was there a conscious? Why does uh, this is what she's like fade? Is there a conscious reason for that, or it stuck out to me tonight more than ever that it just fades? I think some songs just fade, just have to be fade, just have fades, and other songs have a definite ending. And you know, for example, um, the first song, occasional flicker, you know, banana banana bat, and it's just, you know, that song. It's just something that it feels natural when you're writing at the time, um, and and that. I think also because it's an outro that just goes around and round and round, and that was, you know, just seemed an obvious, an obvious fade for us. Yeah. 
some things you don't have to analyze too much, you just kind of know, you know. It's, yeah. Can I do the last one? Yeah, go on then. So when I was saying earlier on that Root do the best books, they, they really do because actually what, what they bring to, to life is, a, is incredible humanity. And whilst when I got over myself and you know, read through about Turaye and, and, and Don't Stand Me Down, actually what, what, what really touched me the most was, was your journey to now. This, this kind of, I don't know which act it would, it would be, what you would call it, <laughs> mm. but, you know, I was saying to you earlier, it, it, it mm. has really felt, for me as a reader, like a, like being reborn. Oh, wow. And that was really powerful. Is that how, mm. is that how it has been for you? What's it been like for you to, to have this new re-emergence back into being creative and making music again? Um. I, I, it, it is a sort of just a new chapter in my life, I suppose. A new, um, yeah, it's been amazing, really, because it's been. I mean, you know, when I stopped playing, that was a, a definite decision mm. to, to mm. stop and, mm. and be with my children. And mm. and I'm a bit all or nothing anyway, to, so I didn't feel I could um, play for the fun of it and just, you know. Mm. Also, the violins, I just find, you know, is a very. For me, anyway, I find it a very difficult instrument to play. Oh, okay. And so I have to practice, you know, all the time. And if I don't play, I worry that I'm losing it, you know. Mm. Um, so with children, you know, it was just like, well, I, you know, yeah. I'm going to... But also I wanted to be with them. I didn't want to tour. And time, time can just slip away as well. Mm. And then I thought, well, it is, you know, um, good to do some other things. So, I, you know, I, I did other work and... Uh, you know, which, which was great. I think mm. I mentioned earlier, mm. and, and um, but the main thing was um, I, I didn't want to be away from my children. Mm. You know, uh, and uh, you know, the, it was a big um, toward when, when they were going to music college. That's when I went. You know, when they were naturally leaving the nest, mm. and, and they mm. were they both went to um, Guildhall School of Music and Drama. So they were doing. I was sort of seeing them do what I did. Mm. Um, and, and the turning point, there were two turning points really. One was, was going to see Dexys at the Barbican mm. where they were playing. Um, um, I'd gone with Billy, my, my, my son who's a drummer, mm. and just watching the band I used to be in playing songs I used to play was, was very, very weird and, yeah, sure. um, yeah quite emotional. Yeah. And, and But just... just yeah, it totally upset me, you know, the, it, not not like crying, but just sort of, yeah, really coming to, being honest with myself, I think, that I was missing mm. missing music. And mm. then one of the songs that had been playing before Dexys went on stage was um, a song by the band. Um, and I'd, I'd heard it, um, the, night they dro- the night they drove old Dixie Dan, and I heard it, not long after that, and that that's what broke me, I think. <laughs> and that was the song, I just thought, right, you know, I just love that song. And, and it was almost like watching somebody else go and get the fiddle out from... from you know, and, um, and I just thought, right, I'm just going to... I've just got to do this now. And I didn't have a plan or anything, um, but I've never really had a plan <laughs> in my life, you know, and it's just... I just sort of thought, well, you're just going to have to work really hard, and if that's what you want to do, and... Um, 
and so I, and that's what I did really and, and all sorts of different ways of quite difficult I think you know I was right well into my 50s and the music business had, had really changed mm. and um, just to think of, of it was too overwhelming to, to have this plan of how I'm going to get it so I, so I just really concentrated on the here and now really mm. and, and um, I did a lot of busking to try and get my confidence back and um, some people recognised me some people didn't and, and I got I got, used to get lots of curious glances I think just being a woman in her 50s you know why, why is she busking you know um, and also the music I was playing was English folk music which um, you know confused a lot of people because it wasn't Irish music and you know there were all sorts of things but it, but it, it was really good for me to, to do that and um also make myself, I think, um, somebody suggested this the other day and I hadn't thought about it, but it was always, almost like making myself quite vulnerable as well. Standing yeah. by yeah, myself yeah, yeah, yeah. in yeah. London, yeah. violin case. Um, I mean, not, you know, the money was nice, but it didn't make very much, you know, mm. but it was, um, that wasn't the reason. It was mm. to put myself there yeah. and play, play, to play by yourself is quite, you know, quite nerve-wracking. I'm I used to... Um, hate it if, if I had started up and somebody would be waiting ready for me to play because I think, well, just want to warm up quickly first and you know that's, <laughs> so um, so it was really good for me psychologically yeah. that and then things started to come in you know Kevin asked me to play on, on Let the Record Show on Women of mm. Ireland mm. Um, and Tanita asked me to play so people I'd worked with before which was re you know really really lovely reconnecting with, with, with my past but you know everybody mm. kept going but obviously mm. you know they were older and then I, I was working with local bands as well, which, which was really exciting, really, really fun. Um, and I did have to, you know, I took some stick from quite a lot of people in um, things like, um, I remember playing with, um, my nephew had a, had, a, had a really lovely group, actually, and, um, you know, we were doing sort of pub gigs and things like that, and uh, some a guy came up to me afterwards and he just said, you, you ruined this gig, you know, he says you're too old, you know, to be playing with this, you know, this band. And it was, and it was just like, I had to really like... Yeah, yeah there's a few twats about... Well, it's just like thinking, I think you've got the problem, mate, not no, me, you, yeah, know, yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? It was that sort of yeah. thing. And it was, it was just like, what, what a thing to say, you know, yeah. so, you know. It's really, so, really unself-aware, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But, but it was funny, I didn't, nothing really didn't you know I had a few of these, these sort of things but it was just like well you know you're not, not going to stop me I'm just going to carry on playing <laughs> so, well you know it, yeah. because usually when people say things like that they it's because they're jealous yeah they've got a problem with they've themselves got stuff going or something on. Yeah, yeah. or they've got yeah. stuff going on you know and it's just like well actually I'm you know I'm really enjoying this so you know mm. you don't have to listen you know <laughs> and um so, so yeah, it was quite. There was, you know, there were quite a lot of challenges, um, and, and but it just sort of got better and better, really, you know. And um, mm. yeah, and and now it's it's um, it's unbelievable, really. <laughs> you know, I like working with Tim. You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> and I still, you know, I still get a bit sort of. Um, yeah, you know, I do have to pinch myself a lot. You know, I've never been, I've never been casual about who I've worked with, and you know. I always get a bit nervous about, you know, not wanting to let to let people down, you know, yeah. when, when, you know, just want to kind of 
do your best, really, you know, for, for who you're working with. So, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I just see, well, see how far it goes, you know. I mean, if it all stopped tomorrow, then, you know, I, you know, I've had a really good life. It's been really, you know, privileged who I've worked with. Um, and do something else, go back to gardening. Or, you know, yeah. Work with any more kids, but, you know, it's, it's just like... <laughs> Well, well, I, for one, am loving this re-emergence of you into the world as as somebody who's deeply creative and deeply human and... Thank you. And I, I can't believe how much that twenty-year-old me sat still sat on the wall in some <laughs> parallel universe, looking at the. No, it's gone. Looking at looking at that and not really not having an idea of what would be inside. Uh, Oh, this has just been amazing. Thank you. This is brilliant. Thank you. Thank you.